This is East of Reason. We are four siblings from Colorado discussing the topics we find most interesting. You may not agree with us, and we often don't agree with each other, but we're here to help start conversations, and we hope you'll join us just East of Reason. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning they, do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That is Dylan Thomas's poem. Do not go gentle into that good night. From 1952, the year his father died. And we are all speaking a bit on that poem and more broadly about death this week, this first week of our podcast. This is Jonah Kunish, and I am the third sibling of the group. I'm the second brother between Eli being the older brother, and Jacob, my younger, and Katie's the oldest, and is my sister. So I'm a little more systematic, maybe, than um, some, and I was told to tie in that poem with the broader theme of death. I kind of wanted to start with that to um, get us in the right mindset for where we're going today. So something interesting about that poem Thomas wrote it at the age of 38. His father had died in 1952 at the age of 76. And Thomas himself died a year later at the age of 39. And it was thought for a long time that Dylan Thomas's death was the result of an alcoholic binge in what would be called an insult to the brain by medical professionals of his time. It was after... Uh, an alcoholic binge in which he was alleged to have boasted he drank, quote, 18 straight whiskeys. I think it's a record. And this is from a Guardian article by John Nazard in 2004. I myself am a fan of whiskey. I like Jack Daniels, for instance. (laughs) Um, I've only ever had two whiskey shots, though, so 18, that's a lot. It's apparently could be lethal, um, but this article from The Guardian was saying that it might have actually been the doctor giving him morphine when he had pneumonia um, instead of giving him morphine for the um, delirium tremens, a drinker's condition that the doctor had supposed Dylan Thomas was suffering from. Dylan Thomas's father, David John Thomas, uh, the year before, had died of pneumonia as well. Uh, the, the source of of Thomas's inspiration to write this poem. I think it's an interesting poem for a lot of reasons, um, especially looking at in the light that Thomas himself entered into that that night a year later. But I think it's a fairly straightforward one about how we should rage against the dying of the light. I don't know if uh, my brother Jacob holds to his opinion still that uh, it's actually in the opposite that. He's saying wise men will accept death, um, but he's encouraging his father to not go gentle because of, for his own sake, um, for his selfish reasons, the son's reasons. But I think he is saying it is good and noble to to rage against the dying of the light, as the poem says. But moving on to the broader topic of death, that happy subject that we all love talking about. Um, And I wanted to start off that subject with a quote from St. Benedict from his Rule of Monasteries, or the Rule, as it's also been called. St. Benedict was a 5th and 6th century monk, and he started many monasteries. He um, 
wrote this book on how to do monastic life. And the quote from the book is, Remember to keep death before your eyes daily. I first heard this quote in an Anglican service in Chattanooga, Tennessee, quite a few years ago now, um, when I was in school in Tennessee. And it struck me when the the minister had first said it, and not because of its radical kind of escape from the normal thinking about death in the Christian context, about how it is a happy thing, about how we go to rest and we go to um, God's arms, um, but rather it struck me, <clears throat> well, I'd, I'd say it was refreshing for that reason, but also it struck me as as true in the sense that we should think about our death and that should affect the way we are living and when we think about what might come next because we never truly know we think about um, if there's punishment if there's reward how are we living and yeah I think it's worth thinking about that we eventually will return to dust um, and what that means for our lives now um, and another person I wanted to highlight in this conversation about death is C.S. Lewis, the classic Christian source on um, thought and theory about philosophy and theology. But I wanted to read a little bit from his book, A Grief Observed, which he wrote shortly after his wife's death. And there's a, a nice long passage that I tried to quote from the first time I tried to record um, this this part of the podcast and realized it was a bit too long so I'm going to kind of skip around um, in the in the passage that I chose from the book uh, of interest so that we can kind of get to the get to the good parts so when I pause for a bit that might mean that I'm skipping around <laughs> but it says from page 666 did not mean to do that but 666 to 668 C.S. Lewis says, Unless, of course, you can literally believe all that stuff about family reunions on the further shore, pictured in entirely earthly terms. But that is all unscriptural, all out of bad hymns and lithographs. That's not a, there's not a word of it in the Bible, and it rings false. We know it could not be like that. Reality never repeats. The exact same thing is never taken away and given back. How well the spiritualists bait their hook. Things on this side are not so different after all. There are cigars in heaven, for that is what we should all like, the happy past restored. And that, just that, is what I cry out for, with mad midnight endearments and entreaties spoken into the empty air. And poor C quotes to me, that's his friend, um, who he saw after a while, and poor C quotes to me, do not mourn like those that have no hope. It astonishes me the way we are invited to apply to ourselves words so obviously addressed to our betters. What St. Paul says can comfort only those who love God better than the dead, and the dead better than themselves. I'm going to skip down a little bit. They tell me H is happy now, and H is his wife that had recently passed away. They tell me H is happy now. They tell me she is at peace. What makes them so sure of this? I don't mean that I fear the worst of all. Nearly her last words were, I am at peace with God. She had not always been. I'm going to skip down a little more. But why are they so sure that all anguish ends with death? That all anguish ends with death. More than half the Christian world and millions in the East believe otherwise. How do they know she is at rest? Why should the separating, if nothing else, which so agonizes the lover who is left behind, be painless to the lover who departs? Because she's in, because she's in God's hands, quote, but if so, she was in God's hands all the time, and I've seen what they did to, did to her here. Do they suddenly become gentler to us the moment we are out of the body? And if so, why? If God's goodness is inconsistent with hurting us, then either God is not good or there is no God. For in the only life we know, he hurts us beyond our worst fears and beyond all we can imagine. If it is consistent with hurting us, then he may hurt us after death as unendurably as before it. Sometimes it is hard not to say, God forgive God. Sometimes it is hard to say so much. But if our faith is true, he didn't. He crucified him. Come, what do we gain by evasions? We are under the harrow and can't escape. Reality, looked at steadily, is unbearable. So I think what C.S. Lewis is wrestling with here, it kind of 
rings um, along the lines of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, talking about how life is meaningless, how everything is chasing after the wind, how it all leads to nothing. Um, he's quite a bit, uh, he's very critical of God, and I think later in the book he uh, balances that a bit with more positive language about God and about the experience of life and death, but here he definitely wrestles with the anguish of death and even some of the anguish of life and how it's unfair, how we all suffer. Um, one of the, one another book that C.S. Lewis wrote is called Surprised by Joy, and it's his spiritual autobiography talking about the different ventures that he took to get to the place of belief in God. Uh, he was an atheist for a long time, was very literary, was a college professor at different points, um, and just read a lot in his life, and um, eventually came to a belief in God with the help and friendship of J.R.R. Tolkien, amongst a few other prominent Christian thinkers. But in that book, he raises the question that he calls the greatest atheist argument, and that question is, if God is so good, why is the universe so messed up? And that's kind of uh, one of the themes he was talking about in that passage we just read together about, yeah, just the, the big questions that don't have answers. Um, and he leaves that question unanswered and surprised by joy as well, but raises it as the greatest atheist question. I think it's interesting, too, in his, in his words, he, he's not one of the spiritualists, as he describes them, somebody that is going to cling to the beliefs of Christianity and orthodox thought um, without thinking for himself. One of the last books he wrote is Till We Have Faces, and it is a reiteration of the, the story of the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and it is Greek mythology, and he, or, sorry, I believe it's Roman, actually, Roman mythology, but he explores the myth and kind of reframes it in a different way. It is not strictly Christian by any means. Um, it's rather, I'd say, spiritual by nature and kind of delving into the experience of life. And that's also a good read. I would recommend any of these books that I mentioned by him, but... Yeah, just some interesting thoughts by C.S. Lewis, who was never one to just cater to Orthodox Christian thought. Rather, he was one to explore and discover and wrestle, um, which I really appreciate in his writing. Some of the other works I wanted to mention, a couple, a couple that would describe death differently from what I've been talking about so far. I've been so far uh, describing kind of the Christian perspective on death and I'm a bit of a, I might have mentioned this already, but a bit of a skeptic. And I'm one to look into what others might say about death. So, again, that's why C.S. Lewis was refreshing to me. Um, St. Benedict and his discussion on death was refreshing. But a few people that would describe death as final, would describe death as something that can't be escaped by um, through religion or any other mode of escapism, as they would call it, um, I believe one of those per one of those people is Stephen Hawking, and his book *A Brief History of Time* was very interesting to me. He says in that book that we can know what happened along the whole timeline of the history of the universe up until from the present moment back as far as the Big Bang. He says, in the Big Bang, we don't know what happened because time had not existed uh, before that. Which um, kind of speaks to me about the possibility of a God creating something, speaking something into being, um, as Christian thought would have it. But he also says that God is clearly not present, which could either be a kind of scientific deism where God created and is not there or uh, just atheism which he would probably lean more toward uh, another atheist whose thought I have found interesting and definitely wrestled with is Marshall Brain and he is the creator of How Stuff Works and he wrote a book called How God Works and in that book he just basically kind of goes step by step logically he calls it logically I think he's a bit 
biased in some ways, but um, brain's essential point is that we know that God is not there, and from His materialist viewpoint, um, what we see is what is there, and our brains trick us into believing that God is there uh, for our own comfort, mostly at death. Um, so that's what I got from a few Christian perspectives and a few atheist perspectives. All right, well, I was power napping. You guys were listening to my recording. What'd you think? Very, very good. Thanks, I thought you man. could have been vo- I think you could have included a quote from a uh, House Up Works guy. I can't quite remember his name. Marshall Brain. Marshall Brain. Yeah, uh, the 15 minute um, cut off was a little hard for me because I ended up using a lot of C.S. Lewis material. Um, had a decent amount to say about that, so I just kind of threw stuff in there for potential discussion, but okay. that's why those might have been a little shorter. Hmm. Were you planning on tying it back into the Do Not Go Gentle and That Good Night, or was it more of an introduction to like a larger topic? with all of those like contributing to that topic equally. Yeah, I think uh, not equally, but I wanted to present like C.S. Lewis's take on death in A Grief Observed, and then just tie in how, I think each, each of us will have unique perspectives on the topic that we do, and my perspective included Marshall Brain's influence, and C.S. Lewis's influence, Stephen Hawking's, and I briefly mentioned Dostoevsky at the end, uh, but I just considered all those as influences to my understanding currently about death. So I was curious about, because it kind of got, got cut off, so I was curious about the Dostoevsky quote that you were talking about. Mm. That, what, was he, what was he talking about? Because you're talking about the Brothers Karamazov, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, maybe should have refreshed myself. Remind me what I said. If you can. We don't know. <laughs> no? Because it was too short? It cut off. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think what I said was just that it is good, um, it's good reading material to talk about life and death. Okay. Um, and I think that book is considered uh, Dostoevsky's like, magnum opus, and he really dives into what it means to be human, mm-hmm. how we feel things. Um, and I think, I don't think I mentioned it here, but, uh, a quote that I love that he wrote, he wrote a letter to his brother saying he became a writer to learn what it means to be human. So he basically devoted his life to researching human characteristics, human understanding. Well, he must have had a pretty dark, per- dark perspective on what being human is then. When you grow up in Russia... I don't know. In that time. time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I don't know about now at all, but like, I've read enough Tolstoy to know, like, and the Gulag Archipelago to know things were not that great. (laughs) Well, well, was he not one of the aristocracy in Russia? I don't know. Was he? No, he spent a lot of his life in poverty. Well, what I understand about Dostoevsky is he spent a lot of time in the Gulag, right? Did he? Who put him there? Meaning the Russian, Russian government. Just because he was poor? I have a very... The Russian... Look at here. This from the Gulag... Sedition, right? Like rebellion against Russian thought? Kind of, but the Gulag Archipelago is about a guy who went there on, like, no evidence, and he doesn't even know why he went, and he spent years there. Alexander Sojournitsyn. I think that the Russian government used it to create fear. They you were just the like... Gulag Archipelago? Just so fear. They would just come and arrest people in the middle of the night. Oh, I thought you meant they created the book to create fear. <laughs> <laughs> he's, just a, a he's just a puppet, oh, a, a puppet author. That's a thick coil to unravel there. That's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Okay, but yeah, that was, I that's, think we should, uh, we should go back to the death um, part of it, getting into the history of Dostoevsky here in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> what went on in the Russia? Qu- oh, we have no idea about. Um, mm. But uh, C.S. Lewis about the uh, a grief observed. It it presents me. I I thought it presented a very singular Christian explanation of that scenario. I had never personally before reading that. I had never heard an explanation like that. That raw 
Wait, wait, hold on. Before you say that, can you explain what you mean by that? Because Jacob and I haven't read A Grief Observed. Um, So, okay. So, I mean, Jonah said it a bit in the introduction. Let's just reiterate. Uh, He had a wife named Joy Gresham that he met. um, She was an American. And they met a little later on in life. And she moved to Britain um, under the care. No, sorry. I don't mean, like, explain the book. I mean, like, explain, like, the view on death that C.S. Lewis portrayed, and that as a thing, like, you hadn't thought about. Yeah. So, the way that I've always grown up in religious thought is that we're supposed to look to death with outstretched arms. We're supposed to look forward to it as a place where we're reconciled with not only God, but our family members, and maybe even a pet or two if we decide that's what we want. (laughs) C.S. Lewis has a very, I thought of it as a original take on that. He says that nothing that is taken is ever given away in the same, the same, same form. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's weird because we do want the same thing, but it's never given to us even in this life. You, you meet someone and you have a relationship grow with that person and then you're separated for five years and you try and rekindle that relationship along those same boundaries and it disintegrates until you realize that they're a different person at this point Mm. so we're and that's only after maybe five years Mm. of a human existence and then we're talking about transcending this earthly form and still expecting the same person to greet you at the pearly gates so as far as death in the christian perspective it was refreshing to me personally but Mm. So that's super interesting because I feel like growing up, I always thought that heaven would be us being so engrossed with being in God's presence that we literally would not care about who else was there. So like we're all, we'll all be like souls like in community with each other, but like not with family ties anymore, which like is kind of a sad thing now, but when I was little, I didn't think it was sad. So what is Dylan Thomas in the poem? Can we tie that back in? I I, I, I don't think Dylan Thomas was it religious person. I think the question would be what would C.S. Lewis, does he think you should rage against the night or not? Hmm. Well, in A Grief Observed, it sounds like he definitely wants it's in a way his own rage against the dying of the light Mm -hmm. for joy. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily for himself, but he's doing the same thing in a way that Dylan Thomas was doing with his father, Mm -hmm. but just post-mortem. So it's um, yeah, I think so. I think it ties in very well. But do you think he would have asked his wife while she was dying to fight? I think she to stay I alive. Think he, I think he probably. I don't think he would have said that because Joy and C.S. Lewis, as far as he tells it, they were both very strong Christians. So I don't think C.S. Lewis would have said to Joy in that moment that he would have thought it. I definitely think, and he would have mm-hmm. wanted her to stay. But I don't think he. I think he would have known her enough to know that that wouldn't have been the right thing to say to her, which kind of goes into maybe the difference between the two. Because if Dylan Thomas, do you know if he was religious at all? Um, I don't, off the top of my head. Yeah, because it just, <clears throat> there's there's another aspect to it regardless of what you want to think about it when you add religion into the equation. Dylan Thomas is saying, Dad, you're going to die, and maybe that's it. We should when I read the poem, it's, you should be fighting against the dying of the light because the light is here. When the light goes out here, it's it's extinguished. I don't think so, though. Because, like, in a way of bringing it back to Jacob's interpretation, he says, wise men know. Mm-hmm. What does it say? The night is yeah. right? And so it's like, <clears throat> what do the wise men know that makes it so? Even if he says you sh- And I think it's his own fear and the fact that, like, he probably saw his father's fear of death also. And, you know, it's so, like... People who fear death will rage against it. And what do the wise men know that they then know night is right? Is it because of religion? Is it because there's something on the other side? But that you still have to rage because that's human nature? Yeah. Can we can we get your interpretation of the poem, <laughs> Jacob? Because oh, yes. I think I I mentioned it briefly in my introduction, but I'd yeah. like to hear From your take. Past, I'm definitely with Jacob, unless it's changed, but go on. <laughs> well, I, I think today I gave it some more thought, and I think I wrapped it up nicely and put a little bow on it. Oh. So, Bows. my interpretation is that that poem is all about human nature and how imperfect it is, and the truth 
he as a writer slash poet, he thinks that there's a truth that death is right and that when you're dying, you should accept it because it's part of life. But it's kind of recognition and almost a um, like almost an admission that he is susceptible to human nature because like you said, he says, the wise man at the end, no dark is right. Rage, rage against dying of the light. Wise men, I think he says, I'm totally paraphrasing here because I don't remember Yeah, can it. we pull it up? Sorry, just that one. Because, like, that's what it's off of. Yeah, yeah. But, anyway, so... Yeah, continue. I think he acknowledges in the poem that death is right, you know? That wise man For whatever at the end reason. know that yeah. dark is right. I think that right there is, like, pretty irrefutable. But then... He goes on to say, I don't think he's saying rage against dying of light for his father's sake. And I think the entire point of the poem is that he's being selfish. Okay, and that might be right. He's He doesn't want his father to live to maintain the light. That's just his selfish nature saying, don't leave me. I want you to survive. Mm-hmm. And I, one of our producers just pulled up the poem for me, and I'll read apparently, it for you guys. Apparently I'm a producer. You <laughs> <laughs> better be paid extra, an extra $0.49. And your, Katie's question, like, what at the end makes you think dark is right? I think there's, I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, Joy, that's C.S. Lewis's wife's name? Mm-hmm. Why do you call her H? Just he wants, to be, a... um, he wants to not... Throw people out in the open. Yeah, the he's book. he's being somewhat anonymous. Like his oh. friend that he mentions that he's kind of throwing shade at. He doesn't Do want to identify. Or I don't think it's necessarily. I think it could be any yeah, good friend. Of okay, well, so Joy, it she says, um, "What I'm well with God, right? I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with God." And did did he imply in that that she she struggled with her faith her whole life? Yeah, and I don't know if I said this in the introduction, but she he mentioned that she would have truth at any cost. And uh, he talks about how reality, when looked at in its full light, is hard to bear. And she would have the true reality, no matter if that was harsh or uh, good or whatever, like she was going to have the truth. So, do you- so she wasn't necessarily like following religious orthodoxy, like she was exploring for herself her whole life. And was still at peace with God at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, even in saying, like, I want reality, I have found peace with God in reality as I've sought to expose it. Okay, so, yeah, that's... So I think that's a good example of one way to accept death. She found it through her faith. But I think that Dylan Thomas's perspective on it is super interesting because he says... So this is, this is uh, the, the part of the poem... Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. So I think that means, as a writer, and as a poet, he kind of he kind of sees your worth in life as how much you kind of stir men's spirits, and how much you affect the world. And if you feel like you lived your whole life without making a difference, you will not go gentle into that good night. But if you did make a difference... And you're leaving a legacy. That's enough for you to go into the dark. Yeah, I think don't talk. Does, does he present that as a possibility of like some men do go gentle into that kind of night? I don't. I don't think he does in this one. But like because I obviously said, his father and himself are not so we have wise men. Old age. Ish. That's what he's saying. Wise men. I think men. that it, maybe on his deathbed he would go gentle into that. Whereas grenade. I think in the poem he's saying, wise I have men. a little wise man in me, and I have a little bit of this person in me. The wise man tells me that death, that death is right. Yeah, but yeah, right. Wants to rage against that. Wow. Yeah, so I don't think he spends so, much time at all talking about how to go gentle to get that good night. I think it's mostly about the human condition and right. saying it's like, like interesting. Yeah, it's an feels so I, say, I think it's like it's a complex issue being presented in the poem. Um, I think for me, and we've had a little bit of this conversation uh, at a previous time, but just the fact that each paragraph either ends with or begins with do not go gentle into that good night or rage rage against the dying of the light like those are the two main repeated lines over and over i think it's almost a command from thomas saying both in the descriptions of the paragraphs he or of the stanzas he's saying these descriptions of these people don't go gentle into the good night he's asking his father not to go gentle even though wise men might know it's right but i think it's also a command and I think 
it's not just him. It's not just Dylan Thomas being selfish. I think he's also trying to get at that mixed understanding that even like maybe Joy and C.S. Lewis had. It's like they had their religious consolations about death, knowing that there was hope in death. But it's also just a a tough thing to go into. Um, somebody else called death like the great equalizer, and like the something like the mysterious equalizer. Um, and so I think there's there's always going to be like that uncertainty, um, and no one can say for sure kind of what's on the other end. And we have ideas, and we have our best guesses at what that is, and we have religious texts and other things. But it's always going to be somewhat of a conundrum. So I think. My understanding is that Dylan Thomas is saying there might be a better way to do it, but the understanding that we have as human beings tells us to fight against that for whatever reason, whether it's clinging well, to life. Maybe but inclination, instinct. Yeah. yeah, but I think he's saying there's something noble in that, even. It's I, a, I think he's saying knowledge brings us outside of that, and that's where the wise men are. But they're not. He's saying the wise men know, mm-hmm. but they still rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even as they know they rage. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. And what I think is very interesting is like, think about what he actually means by rage in this poem because at the end he says, because I was thinking like, oh, try to stay alive, right? But at the end he says, and you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, yes. I pray. But it's with your fierce tears. It's not even that you should try to stay alive, but at least show me that this is painful for you. Uh. To leave me. And that it means something. Yeah. Yeah. And to not like accept it with peace, but as you, as you die, be angry and sad because Mm. you are being ripped from this world almost. And so Mm. like, I mean, I don't know. He just like, he doesn't really talk about necessarily what raging against the dying of the light is, except for right there when he talks about the fierce tears. That's Which a is, very interesting thing. Yeah. Because I never even thought about that. Yeah. Like, well, it's not even about actually staying alive. It's just maybe about recognizing that. Just acknowledging. Like, acknowledging you're this. You're leaving is, all of us. You're leaving. And, like, three of the poems talk about, like, basically glory, about not having glory. And maybe no man can have enough glory that they should feel good about, like, oh, I did the best I could. Maybe he's saying, well, no one can ever do the best you could. So when you die, you should look back and be like, gosh. I should, I could have done better and I should have done better and that should be your rage against the night even as you die. Well, there's that other poem. You remember Coach Carter? That poem they have in Coach Carter? Yeah. In that Atticus poem. Here. Do you, have you ever, you know what poem Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. You don't like it? Okay. I think, silly. I think that poem is. Here's That's all of high school. But, no, what? that poem. That poem <laughs> drama. What do, you, what do you think it's about? I... I've only taken it at face value. The last time I heard it was okay, so a long time ago. So I think it's about we're not afraid of what we could do. We're afraid of what we should be able to do and don't do. We're afraid of our capability to be gods and be humans. And but how much also, but if you like mix that with other things like what were we talking about? East of Eden. Right. About I shouldn't wish my son to be a great man. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like the same thing, like, you're afraid to know that you could be great because being great is terrible. Yeah, because he says it's... It's It's terrible just because we don't aren't great. No, 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 it's it's lonely and hard and you you have to make hard decisions being great. That's what Samuel says about his son. What kind of man can come to the end of life and say, I've done everything in my capability? No man can say Maybe that's that. what no Thomas say is that. saying. And you should acknowledge that at the end. So maybe that's why he's saying wise men know that death is right. And he says, even though they're, they fork no lightning, because compared to what they could be doing, they didn't live up to their capability. And I don't think anyone can. That's why death is a conundrum in this circumstance. Yeah, I agree. That's why but I, I, they I rage. Gonna, I, I was going to say... Um, I think an alternate perspective, apart from joy, would be like Nietzsche. Nietzsche talks about accepting life how it is and not shielding your eyes from the grossness and the vulgarity and how base people are to begin with. And that's the first step. And so, regardless, I won't talk about his death or the things leading up to his death, but he does talk about why... So. Wise men know that death is right, 
So Nietzsche would say they know that death is right because it's inevitable, because reason tells you you're going to die. So that's going to happen, regardless of what you believe or what you tell yourself. It's going to happen, and you need to steal yourself for that reality. While the other side of us doesn't necessarily accept it as reality. And that's the side of us that's evasive. So you think Nietzsche would say, do not rage? No, I would say, I would say Nietzsche would say rage a heck of a lot. <laughs> he, was, he, was a, he was a Dionysian thinker, as opposed to an Apologian thinker. But it's like, he, he wanted people to express rage. And I would say he would say, yes, rage. Mm. Express your full emotion. Because it's Any, a human but, condition. But, like just, but just sit in it for a while and accept that that's the reality of what you're going through. And if you need to rage, rage. If you need to cry, cry. But whatever you need to do to come to homeostasis the way that existence actually is, as opposed to what we would hope it would be. I think he'd say that about joy and stoicism. They would hope. But I don't know what he'd make of uh, Grief Observed. That's pretty honest. Huh? What Nietzsche would make of it? Right. Or, yeah, and I was going to say earlier, I think uh, C.S. Lewis, like, the, the book was kind of a shock to me uh, because it is realistic to the point of almost contradicting some of his other writings, Mm -hmm. which are very logical and measured and uh, systematic in their thinking. A grief observed is very emotional. I think that can be another one of the complexities of human existence is emotion versus reason. Mm -hmm. That we can sit when things are good and when things are kind of like in the homeostasis like you are talking about, and we can say, yeah, death should be okay. Like, I lived a life, and I knew uh, at a young age that there was going to be death at some point, mm-hmm. um, and I should live in such a way that when it's all said and done, I will be somewhat okay with it. But I think Grief Observed is refreshing for that reason. Uh, C.S. Lewis accepts the full weight of his emotion and documents it, in a way that is very um, counter to other places where he's been very logical in his other writings. And it kind of yeah. brings forth a sincerity in it. Mm. Whereas I think that's what a lot of people would say is lacking in, it, in a lot of his apologetics is the, the emotional side of it. Saying like, mm-hmm. well, how would you react in an emotional way? Because we're emotional animals. Mm-hmm. You can't look at the problem of pain strictly, logically, and expect people... Expect that argument to move people in the same in the same way. At least the majority of people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the second chapter of Grief Resort, I think it's amazing that he says, "I wrote that in haste and anger." The, the equivalent of that. And I've, I've I've always heard that people talk about the book as he wrote it in just freehand. Just he didn't do much editing after mm-hmm. he finished it. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah, and yeah, and he says at different points like, I I was in it like a fit of rage, and I was focusing on myself rather than right. Joy herself, who's going through this. I'm just an observer who's making it about me. And then he does step back at times, and evaluate it logically, but you do get that initial surge of emotion, that honesty. So that was like kind of like the narrator in East of Eden with Kathy. That just reminded me of. The, the narrator in East of Eden. Oh, yeah. With Kathy. John like, Steinbeck. Well, it is John arguably. <laughs> no, he's, he, that's John. a he different... Says, he says, and then, then came John, and that's me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's going through the genealogy. You guys have a the real genealogy. problem with that, but it's not him. It's a, it, it's, it's a child it's, version of Yeah, anyways, so okay. Him. Well, that's all it is. Well, it's because also the, this, the mythologized version of his family. he's a narrator, he's in the same timeline as that kid. All right, let's let's bring it back. Let's uh, bring it back to the theme here. Okay, so uh, just to kind of switch topics slightly, um, you said something about there was a speaker, an author, who talked about keeping death ever before you, mm-hmm. which is interesting, because I I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there was this yeah Saint Benedict Saint Benedict oh perfect thank you mm-hmm. because. Uh, they did this special on Kirk Cousins on ESPN when he got traded to the Vikings because he was like this big personality then. And he keeps this huge tube of rocks outside his front door. But him and his wife 
calculated based on like life expectancy how many weeks they were expected to live oh. if they died of old age. And so every day he picks up one of those rocks, it keeps in his pocket as like a reminder of like, this is one of your weeks. So how are you going to spend it? Oh my gosh, it's a beautifully <laughs> disturbing thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And he like, he quotes like a verse, I don't know what chapter it's from, but like the verse says like, teach me to number my days, uh-huh. which he like did off. And there's also like an Ecclesiastes, I, I assumed you would kind of know what I was talking about, but I don't know. There's like a verse from Ecclesiastes that he talks about, about just like knowing that there's an end mm-hmm. and living like there's an end. Ecclesiastes could definitely be a whole podcast episode. Well, that is another. Ecclesiastes starts out by saying that it talks Everything about the is cycle vanity. of rivers and the waves, and then it talks about humans, how they're not. <laughs> yeah, but I thought that was like, like how do you keep death before you is a question I would have, but also what does that, how does that make you act? Because Eli and I are talking about like people who believe there's an afterlife versus people who don't believe there's an afterlife. Does that change the way you act? I I was asking how I was asking mainly as a as a Christian I find it hard to understand where meaning comes from. I don't necessarily want to get into this conversation, but can we? I can we first like talk about the Kirk Cousins thing? I don't know anyone's reactions like uh, reactions to like carrying a rock around, being like I'm going to die someday. (laughs) I I like it generally. I think there are a lot of unknowns that. Kirk Cousins doesn't, like, isn't aware of, like, anything could happen day to day, but that being said, I like the idea of, like, that is a way to keep death daily before you, is to know that you're holding in your pocket what represents a week of your life. But also... And I think we can lose that perspective a lot of times. I mean, like, right now it's, like, full for him, but, like... In ten years. Oh, it's probably it's probably like it's gonna be like half empty. Like, how would that make you feel walking up to your house every day and there's like a half empty Mm. tube of rocks and you know that that represents your life as like you as best as you can expect. But with modern science and Kirk Cousins' reasonably (laughs) high income, there's no reason he can't live to two hundred, three hundred years old. I personally so throw that in there. They just refill it too <laughs> with some with some solid gold rocks. No. Um, I, I think it's it's a bit grotesque. I mean, you have a you have a ton of people throughout the ages. A lot of writers and speakers that are obsessed with death. Mm-hmm. And from what I remember about most of them. Not people I'd like to have a drink with. Like Edgar Allan Poe? Right. <laughs> like Edgar Allan Poe. Well, especially I mean, when his children grow up. I mean, like, I actually think it's a really good segue into, like, your children asking about it and being able to, like, explain death in a positive way. But, like, he doesn't have children right now, so, like, how is he going to react when that, like... I mean, he has children here that are a baby. They're a gonna, baby? Is he gonna they, get... <laughs> they are one <laughs> Does each baby get their own tube of rocks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know if his wife has a tube of rocks. Is it just him? Oh yeah. But um, I just thought it was like because my first reaction was like, wow, that's like super morbid. Yeah. Why would you do that? And my but then as he kept talking, he was like, it's just like a reminder to me that I need to like be intentional about my influence with my teammates and with my coaches and the staff. Like, I I like that a lot, and that I actually that makes me kind of want to fill up a little tube of marbles, <laughs> but. I would. I'd like to pose a question. Do you think there's any merit to keeping death as far out of your mind as possible? Living like that? Any, I think... There's any merit to that? Not better, but any merit. That's what you're asking. Yeah, you know, okay. there'd be any advantage to that. Thinking, my, yeah, I, not, my clock is not okay, running so, out. So say... So say <laughs> I don't There are plenty of circumstances where convincing someone they're invincible would be good for not necessarily them but like a soldier but it's a soldier that they're that they're invincible but like if you were constantly thinking about death you want to go skydiving you wouldn't zip line through the jungle of a developing world yeah i'm just thinking like wait you wouldn't do those things you wouldn't take those risks because like i think you might live it up knowing your days are numbered anyway like those are ways to live life while you can right but if you have children at home you, you should still take those risks as, like, I think you should take those risks as a model to your children, and, but you're not going to, like, like, I got to get home with my kids. 
I want to clarify, are you talking yeah. about the believing you're not going to die or believing no. there's an afterlife? I'm or just, just saying, not thinking about just, it. Just, just not thinking about, about it. it. Not thinking about death. Yeah. Okay. Which is kind of equivalent to fooling your, you know you're fooling yourself, but like fooling yourself for a while that you're not going to die, I think. Okay. Yeah. Is that sure. cognitive dissonance? Yeah. Where you just put life over death and well, say... I don't think it has to be that way. I think you can look and say, I'm going to die eventually, but I don't have to worry about it. But I don't care, because it's going to come when it comes. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't don't give yourself two Baroks. Just focus on living life, because I don't know, I feel like that might put death too close to your face. <laughs> Is too close right in your pocket. Might, might snatch yeah. you. Well, there's yeah. only yeah. Yeah. Things so you can close. focus on. You know, and if you're yeah. constantly dwelling on death, yeah. then you're not thinking about the things that might be better to think about. Well, okay, but the tuba rocks is a little different than saying, like, death is around every corner. Because, like, the tuba rocks <laughs> is, like, some rocks. inherently, like, yes, I have more rocks. Like, maybe on his last rock, he's going to be like, death is here. <laughs> but, like, really, the, actually, like, thinking about it, the tuba rocks kind of gives him hope that he still has quite a bit of time. There's still a lot of rocks. Yeah. So, in, the, in actually, it might, like, work in the opposite way of what he wants it to. Because he might look at that tomb and be like, that's pretty full. I got a lot of time. Hmm. Interesting. Rather than like being like, I could die at any moment and I therefore should live to the best of my ability and like use this time to like be intentional with people. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if somebody put death out of their minds completely uh, and then the subject came up inevitably in life. Like even if they're not thinking about it, someone brings it up. If that person might be like mortified when that thought does come to their consciousness, and they say, "Oh, I haven't like I haven't reconciled this with my own thinking recently. I've put it out of my mind for so long. I just didn't think about it." And when that does happen, it might be an overwhelming thing if because they haven't put in the work to reconcile if, it to themselves. But if there's if there's no afterlife, then that would be the best case scenario. To just not think about it? To not think about it and then have some crazy breakdown before you die. Because you lived your whole life in relative joy, not thinking about death, until you had to face it, which was for a minute amount of time, and then it's over. It's true. If only we so had a... I would assume that'd be a, a wake good way to nurse but to tell us about people close to death. So. Oh, if only... I have a question related to that for the group. Mm -hmm. If there is no afterlife, is it better to live a hedonistic lifestyle and just live it up while you can? Or to live in such a way that you're respecting other human beings, you're serving other human beings, so as to get the this same action back to you? Here we go. This I tried to avoid it. I tried to avoid it. It was a long, it was like two hours back from Newport Beach. See, Me and Eli. Right now, we have Should we try and to steer it back? We're well, on the same promise. side, and it was still two hours. So, like, well, imagine different sides. I, well, well, not on the same are side. Are you guys on the side? No. So There's, like, four quadrants, and we're in different quadrants, but on the same half. I'd like you to draw that quadrant <laughs> So listeners. Yeah, I, I, I would like <laughs> that, too. But since I asked the question, I would just like to clarify okay. that. Yeah. I, like, I learned that idea in philosophy class in college about how Philosophers that thought there was no afterlife still would say, some philosophers would say that it's still good to live in a, a serving manner because that will is what truly what will bring you happiness and make you at peace with your fellow man. Mm, this is my thing. Mm, mm. But okay. I think if you let's, let's draw the quadrants okay. too. Okay, all right, all right hold on. Okay. Let's get to that eventually. Quadrants? Okay. Really I gotta think. All right, so there's like, <laughs> there's, there's basically atheistic. Versus agnostic, so like non-religious versus religious. Okay, it's well, the first. And do you know who, who came up with this, these quadrants? This is me. This, this, is, this is a completely original thought right now okay. as we're like doing this. And now okay. I'm trying to divide because I know me and Eli were different. So there's hedonistic she versus drew, altruistic. She drew a yes. line with atheism on one side and religion okay. on the other side. Hedonistic versus altruistic. Now we'll let's flesh this out. Let's we'll flesh that for so, listeners. Yeah, yeah. So there's four. So like on the top, there's two columns that are atheist or non-religious versus religious. So like maybe afterlife versus no afterlife is better to how I'm thinking of it specifically. And then the rows are hedonistic oh, or like chart. Epicurean kind of in the mm -hmm. modern view of Epicurean, not actually like the classical view of Epicurean, mm -hmm. and altruistic. 
versus like legacy driven is what I would say. I think I don't know if you do this right. Present driven versus legacy driven. So so the no, top left Eli, quadrant would be because you're not in any of those. Altruistic and atheistic. Do you think? Because I would have put you I, here, yeah, you, and I, I would have put me I'll here. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. I mean... Okay, so this is my thing. Maybe. Okay, no. because this is this is how I understand. Like, Eli and I are both religious, so we're on that side of, like, there is an afterlife. Hmm. And we're looking to the other side of, like, if I didn't believe there was an afterlife, could I still find meaning in life? Where Eli was like, why not just kill yourself now? <laughs> Who's that ex? Pretty Who much. is in the religious and hedonistic <laughs> box? Eli. Eli. Eli's a hedonist. E. No, this is Wait. what he thinks that non-religious people would be. And this is where I'm like, no, non-religious people could very easily be here. <laughs> so why is that? I don't know. The listeners can't see this and it's confusing us. So what I believe is that, is that yes, non-religious people can claim to altruism, but there's no reason behind it. And they do live that out usually. Usually they do end up living it out. He also out. thinks they're more logical than they are. People in no, general are okay, way I'm more saying, rational. I'm saying, as from a purely logical progression, there's no reason yeah. to go that direction. But here's my thing. If you don't believe there's an afterlife, I think the only thing that would matter to you is what you... There could either be... The only thing that matters to you is what you... Like, how much experience or pleasure you get in your life, right? So there's that that perspective. But there's also a perspective of... The only thing that matters to me is that I make the world better for future generations. Why? And that's it. Why would you... Why because... Because... They, I, their lives matter. Because yeah. this is all there is. And no, so I want to make it easier. I might modify that. That we're gonna die from sun death and nothing's gonna matter. Do not understand your perspective. <laughs> no, like that's I, just the end of this. I think it's not I'm about sorry. future generations. I think that the, the dichotomy Legacy. is make myself happy versus making others happy mm-hmm. in the present. Not about. But the why would you make? Why you think that just making others happy in the? Because if you don't believe in any higher power, the only the closest thing to a higher power there is is humanity. But like, what why about like that? people who are? Because they're the like, highest. Yeah, like athe like why, like why? an atheist who wants why, to like do why, like why climate change. Sorry, you no. want to do climate change? Do <laughs> humans do in general? Growing cross oh, yeah. I know. Okay. <laughs> so evolution claims. Scoot <laughs> forward. <laughs> I'm gonna say it out loud now. Evolution claims, <laughs> as far as I understand it, that you're mostly concerned with your offspring, and then yourself, and then the wider <laughs> species. Right? Am but I wrong about that? Well, uh, what would you say? Is uh, yeah, evolution. Evolution would say you're entirely concerned with your offspring. Yeah, because your whole purpose is to produce offspring. Because what's driving you is survival of your species. Yeah, right. And so the survival of your species is contingent on your offspring. Yeah, but also hedonism does not exist in nature. That is a human thing. So somehow we have... Even- Dolphins. <laughs> Yeah, there that's actually a decent point. Dolphins, End of the conversation. Some Dolphins. Questionable things happen. Um, well, okay, but you also have the co- the cocaine ma- mice mm. that chose cocaine over food and starved themselves. So that's a little hedonistic. But okay, yeah. Um, but the so that mm. I think I think there's even hedonism in the desire to want to reproduce. Because for for whatever reason, whether it's survivalist or whatever it might be, vanity, sex is the most pleasurable thing for a lot of species, and so that's hedonistic in a sense. You say hedonism doesn't exist in nature, that's pretty hedonistic. Wanting to reproduce, the intention, but they're not intending to have offspring in the act. But a lot of people are. Their their instinct knows, and the genetic code knows that they're going to produce offspring. But it's not the motivating factor. The motivating the motivating factor is pleasure in the moment. That's what I'm saying. That's hedonism. Right. For it's hedonism, I'd say. But, but okay. Okay. We're gonna bring it back to death because we have veered quickly off course. Yeah. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna kind of go around and summarize everyone's thoughts. Yeah, I guess everyone has about a minute twenty seconds, maybe minute fifteen. Okay. You want me to start? Do you want to start? Sure. Okay. Okay, so talking about death and the poem, because those are our starting points, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I think I think through this conversation, 
as we're talking about death, as we're talking about what it means to be human and the conundrum of being human, uh, I still go back to just general complexity. I think we can talk these things round, and there's still going to be the conundrums there of, is there an afterlife? Is there not? How do I live? How do I die? Uh, whether that be acceptance of death, raging against the light, as Dylan Thomas would say. Um, and even, like we even talked, we even touched on, do you live concerned with death or do you put it out of your mind as to live a better life? Um, I, I think those questions and those struggles are always going to be present in our, in our consciousness. And I think what Dylan Thomas is arguing, my theory on the poem is that he is claiming that that is noble. That's my conclusion. Interesting. All right. <clears throat> yeah, I still generally feel the same way about the poem. I think that Dylan Thomas is generally just making kind of a observation of humanity that he rationalizes that death is natural, but he also is saying that it's it's such a powerful force that we can't withstand withstand it without kind of breaking down that rationalism. And I don't think he includes religion at all in this poem. I, I kind of get the impression that he's not religious just based on this poem. So I, I don't I don't really have anything to add from the religion perspective. Hmm. But I, I would I think a a decent one of the main themes of this poem is that death oftentimes is not hard for the dying. It's only hard for the living. What do you think, Eli? I think uh, it reminds me back to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of apologetic books that were very logical and rationally sound, in my opinion. But in practice, when it comes to applying emotion and actual experience to those arguments, they don't really hold up too well um, in the moment. And that's what you see in it. A grief observed. Um, in the poem, you have the the wise men at their end. No dark is right because their words fork no lightning. They do not go gentle into that good night. That to me is uh, in a way the same thing. Uh, wise men know logically that it's inevitable and you have to accept it. But our emotion and our human uh, experience tells us otherwise. Tells us that we. Uh, that it's a lot bigger than we thought, and we may not be able to handle it. Katie, bring us home. <laughs> I think I would say that, in my perspective, Dylan Thomas's poem does say that everyone should accept their death in their own right, but for the sake of the people around them, and to acknowledge like the lack of their potential and the lack of reaching their potential, that they should rage against the dying of the night even if it's only to show that they are upset by it. But I may disagree that watching someone accept death peacefully could give their family peace mm. and could give them courage to face their own deaths. Mm. And that's, true. that's just a different thing of watching um, someone instead of being so upset about dying to just say, this is part of life and we're all going to face it and... I want you to have the same kind of courage that I'm having right now in this moment. Yeah. Do we have one more minute after that? Sure. About 30 seconds. Okay. Cool. Earlier you said yes. this raging against the light, dying of the light, even like in the human frustrated way, you said that he thinks that was noble. Mm -hmm. Do you still, can you expand on that a little bit? Um, <laughs> I think he thinks it's necessary and that you should. I don't know if I would say noble. Oh. Okay. I think Jonah may have said but that. But you disagree Jacob. that you disagree that that's not necessary. You say it's I don't not think it's I don't think it's one or family. the other. I think that sometimes if you need to rage, you should, but that is terrible for you in your last moments of life. Well, it's not more terrible for you, levels. Yeah, and I I guess I would want people who are close to me to be sad they're leaving me. I don't know. That's kind of a sad note to end on, but. But that's all the time we here got. Here we are. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>
We mentioned a couple times weeks during the episode, um, implying that we might be releasing things weekly. That'll just depend on how quickly we can get together and record new episodes and edit and all that. Um, And like I said, we're still figuring out this podcast thing. Um, So we'll be putting out content soon. Um, Not promising anything weekly, but thank you for joining us for this first episode, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon.